Hare Krishna. Uh, I'm still in Australia, and I am speaking by Skype with Krishna West London. Uh, all the nice devotees there. Reshma and Sankarsana, Pradyumna, Petra, and Ramananda. And so I invited them to ask any questions they may have, and they brought up the topic of gender. So here we go. So I'm going to be talking about gender and uh, how it relates to our preaching and to what's going on historically in the world. Okay, there is a very well-known phenomenon, both it's not only Newton's uh, law of motion, but also it's found psychologically, it's found sociologically, historically, as Hegel pointed out, and that is the pendulum effect. Pendulum effect, it's in the dialectical context, it's thesis and antithesis, which ultimately resolve into some new, new reality, which is the synthesis. So, um, when I was young, er, um, <laughs> I was in Berkeley, California in the late sixties at the, really the epicenter of a type of social revolution, cultural revolution. And I was in the streets protesting with all the maturity of a, an 18 and 19 year old boy that uh, whose brain will take another 10 years to actually fully form. But anyway, uh, I had that experience of, of really seeing the world change before my eyes, seeing history being made, seeing witnessing history before my, my eyes. And uh, it was a powerful experience and one that really inspired me to try to bring about the real revolution, which is Krishna consciousness, the real change in the world. <clears throat> and so, um, and it's just always been one of my best subjects, history. So I, I am increasingly convinced, I am convinced actually, that there is a major historical event taking place in the West right now. I mean, literally right now, it's just happened, especially in the last two years. And it is now manifesting, especially as a dramatic uh, development in Western intellectual history. And inevitably, uh, that will play out in terms of just political, cultural, and social history. And you know, perhaps even economic history. But So what I'm referring to is uh, a backlash, a, a, a very a growing powerful pushback against a type of intellectual tyranny of leftist political correctness. And so I want to talk about that, what's actually happening. Uh, I mentioned the pendulum effect because power corrupts. And when I went to Berkeley in 19, January of 1967, America was by and large conservative. I mean, obviously, at any given moment in history, there are there's left, center, and right. But the center back then, today would be considered very, you know, very much right, very strong right. But back then, it was the center. Because every society, it's not being convulsed by, you know, violent or, or radical changes, basically uh, settles into a particular uh, historical reality. 
so at that time, uh, the country, the center, you could say the political or cultural center, was to, today would be considered very much to the right. But that was the consensus at the time. And there was a protest. It, it actually started, it, I mean, it started with the civil rights movement. And, uh, and then what really kind of ignited things and brought it to another level was the free speech movement in Berkeley. And so you had the more conservative forces who were in power, who were the center of society. They, you know, controlled practically all the social, educational, political institutions worth controlling. And so therefore, the idea of voicing more liberal or leftist ideas was not looked upon very well. And so because of the attempts to suppress that speech, it quickly morphed into a free speech movement. And that actually it took sort of a nasty turn to the filthy speech movement, like, like sort of pushing the limits, pushing the boundaries. And we have a right not only to free speech, but filthy speech. And it, I mean, that was kind of a, even for young people, that was remarkably stupid. But anyway, so the point I want to make is that with this sudden rise of the left and young people and, and, and the center of this leftist movement was the Western University campus. A powerful historical consequence of that is that a rising number of people, almost all on the left, decided to go into an academic career. And so it's interesting, before that movement, if you were, let's say, if you got a PhD and you wanted to be a professor somewhere, you could almost name the school you wanted to go to. In fact, I think it was very analogous to, let's say you're a Brahmana and you're a good Brahmana in ISKCON, you're pretty much welcome everywhere. Let's say you're, you know, not political. You're just a good Brahmin. Give nice classes, do some puja. Then, uh, you know, you could pretty much name the temple you want to live in. And the academic world was pretty much like that. It's hard to believe now because there's such ferocious and possible competition to get good academic positions, but that's the way it was. So really changed is uh, that huge cultural, cultural, social, political revolution, the epicenter of which really was on campus. It really was on campus. That's where the ideology was being worked out. That's where things were being organized, I remember. When I first got to Berkeley in 1967, just after my 18th birthday. Oh my God, I just admitted my age. Okay, erase this tape. Anyway, so I remember, and I don't even know how this happened, but I somehow ended up at this meeting, which was held, I think, in a campus building or just right off campus, but it was absolutely within the academic community. And it was the, the Socialist Party or, or maybe left of socialists. And it was a meeting to organize protest and resistance. And, uh, and so somehow I ended up in that meeting and, and I was just coming from a nice Jewish suburb in Los Angeles where the heaviest thing that ever happened was like, you know, a serious basketball game or something. And so I was exposed to all this. In fact, when I first got to Berkeley, I, my mother had uh, arranged a dorm contract. I was in the dormitory at Berkeley. It's the first time I was ever going to go live away from home. And uh, and so we 
shared rooms with another student. So I remember literally when I walked into the room, I still remember this. My roommate was a sort of a upper, like, I mean, you know, sort of coming from a nice, well-do background in the East Coast. His name was Chris Oakley. I still remember that. If you're out there, Chris, please, you know, contact me. Anyway, so he, um, you know, I was just 18, just turned 18. The first thing he said to me, I said, hi, I'm your roommate, my name, blah, 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 his name. The first thing he said to me was, uh, we have a plan, serious plan. We're going to put LSD in the municipal water supply. So that was my introduction to Berkeley. Fortunately, he actually didn't do that, but anyway. So, but because this revolution was really going on on campus, a lot of students, or let me say much more than before, suddenly felt that the university campus was kind of like their natural habitat. That was the center of revolution. That was the center of social change. And, and, and it's interesting because it was, in its own way, it was like an intellectual movement or a pseudo-intellectual movement, depending on how critical you are, but because the revolution that was going on against an existing power, I mean, I mean the conservatives absolutely had power, although they called themselves conservative center, central uh, center and, and, mod and left. But still, I mean, the, the center was very conservative. So they tried to repress this, they especially, it's, it's interesting, just like when we first went out on St. Kirtan way back then, and we were all young and telling all the adults, like, what's wrong with your life and what you need to do now. And of course, older people love to be instructed by young people. It's one of the things they most enjoy in life. So just as, just as people did not respond well to that, so you can imagine all these young college students telling all the leaders of the country and all their parents and everybody else, you know, you, you're totally wrong. Everything you're doing is wrong. It was, you know, it was really pleasing to the older generation. So, but the idea was that the revolution is happening. And so therefore a lot more students wanted to stay on campus. They wanted to stay on campus because that was their natural habitat. This is where revolution happens. This is where the ideas get worked out. And I said because the, the consensus was conservative, um, they had to make the, the revolutionaries had to make good arguments. And of course, the leftist agenda against it, it was kind of like this anti-capitalist, anti-greed, uh, anti-capitalist greed. And so, kind of like the Bible was Marx. For example, my first quarter at Berkeley, my first quarter is at UCLA, and then I transferred up there because I was, uh, let's say, a close acquaintance of mine, sister on that. But um, when I got up there, I took a sociology class, and we read uh, the Communist Manifesto. That was like one of the first classes I took there. And I remember when I read that the workers of the world were going to unite and create a better society, I mean, my father had a store. I knew what workers were like, and I just thought, yeah, right. Because I knew they just said, guys around all day, you know, smoking cigarettes and, you know, talking in very unpolite ways about women. And, yeah, they're going to they're gonna create a better society, definitely. So, anyway, because they, because they wanted to stay on campus, because that was where the revolution is. That's where the intellectual revolution is. That's where the political and social revolution, which is a carrying out of the intellectual revolution, 
that's where it's organized. And so to stay on campus, it made me become a professor. That's how you stay on campus your whole life. Unless you have rich parents, you take like thousands of classes and never graduate. So, so you had this huge influx of people on the left, very much on the left, this huge influx of uh, doctoral students. Also because there was, a, and, but anyway, so, so suddenly instead of this sort of relaxed atmosphere, you get a PhD, you kind of name the school you want to teach at, suddenly became very competitive to get academic jobs. And, but, but the relevant point here is that the left took over the academy, the university. I mean, obviously there are Christian schools, there are even public schools, maybe in some very conservative areas, but in general, certainly at the elite schools, certainly in, in many, many parts of the country, the left effectively took over the universities. Now, this had some very unfortunate effects because when I went to the university a few years ago, um, the whole spirit of going away to college, the whole spirit of it was that now you're going to engage in debate and test your ideas and learn new things. And so you went to the university specifically to open your mind and stretch your mind and be exposed to all kinds of ideas. But, and, and so if you look at the ratio of left to right, let's say among the professoriate, the faculty, back then, they tended to be more left, but maybe two to one. And so there was still a lot of debate going on. But what happened with the revolutionary, the revolutions of the 60s, which were based in campus, and this huge increase in the number of students that wanted to stay on campus as professors, and consciously, consciously to get control of the university so that the university became an instrument for, for um, political change and social and culture change. And so, um, <clears throat> so for example, among American psychology professors, rather than a you know, three to two or two to one ratio of left to right, it's now 17 to one. 70, what that means basically, if you're the one, you better keep your mouth shut. Because it's not just that the 17 disagree with you, it's that they see you somehow as evil or a cause of injustice. It's interesting because if you look at religious communities, they tend to think that there are the saved or there are the people that have seen the light and there's everybody else who are just sort of wallowing in ignorance and sin. Especially in the West, there's that tendency in you know, born-again religions because Western religions came from the Middle East that very much had that zero-sum approach to religion. It's either you get it right or you're horribly wrong. So um, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So the leftist takeover of the universities, and they really did take it over consciously and, and fairly completely, um, they brought with them the same psychology. It, it, it's like you have a certain structure and you can just change content. 
it's like you have a little template on your computer screen and you can put whatever content you want it's the same template and so rather than let's say anyone who doesn't accept jesus in exactly the way that a particular church does then that person's a devil now anyone that disagrees with a particular political or social theory is the devil and so um but with this power shift, going back to the pendulum effect I brought up at first, power corrupts. And just like in the, in the 60s when I was at Berkeley, the right tended to be intellectually sluggish and um, just not really on their game, like, you know, like, like serious thinking. That was muscles they hadn't used in a long time. And so you had the, the, the left giving all these arguments and the right just saying, uh, you're shameful or you know you're sinful or you're name calling and the west was coming up well hegel said and marx said and, and this and that and all these and, and you know on the right the conservatives just saying these people are shameful they're they're uncivilized name calling so now the power relationship has absolutely flipped to the other side the pendulum has gone all the way to the other side and so it's actually happening now in the West, it's certainly in America, it's, it's, it's becoming increasingly well-known. And I'll, I'll give you all the evidence and the symptoms of how this revolution is actually taking place. That is, we now have the antithesis. The thesis was the intellectual revolutionary left against sort of like an unresponsive, unthinking, set in their ways right. Now the pendulum's gone all the way to the other side and the left has been in power so long the universities. It's just like they say power, you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. That now the interesting and relevant and powerful intellectual revolution is actually going on on the right. And I, I don't mean the stupid right. I mean, there definitely is a stupid right. But I mean the smart right. Because the people, and, and you, know, you can say conservative, or maybe, maybe you don't want to say right, maybe you could say new intellectual conservatism is being led by famous scholars at some of the best universities in the world. We're talking about law professors at Harvard, uh, clinical psychologists at the University of Toronto. I mean, people, just really prominent people from uh, the president of the University of Chicago, which is now absolutely on the level, not only of an Ivy League school, but of one of the upper echelon Ivy League. And so, and what they're saying, and, 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 the, and and so what they're doing is they're basically saying two things. They have two prominent, two main criticisms of the academic left and their followers. Number one, that they have abandoned the Enlightenment project of being rational. And so, and, and so the nature of dogma is it's just like when Luther, the Protestant Reformation, he rejected the rising science by Galileo. He rejected the, the, the renaissance of, of, of classical philosophy. And he said, sola scriptura, only scripture. Sola faith, the only faith. So it was this dogmatic, fanatical rejection of any other source of knowledge but our dogma. And that's exactly now what is happening on the left, or what has happened especially it's accelerated in the last decade. And that is that, for example, social science, 
social science, which was practically the, the, the um, point of the lance, or they say the spear point that sort of led the charge against racism, again, you know, that, 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 was, that led the charge in favor of feminism. And, uh, you know, the sociology departments were always the kind of like place where the revolution was organized, like sociology TAs, teaching assistants, were kind of like the leaders of the Berkeley leftist revolution. But now what's happened is that the left has gone so far in their dogma, so far in their, that, that uh, social science is saying, wait a second, what you're saying is not true. What you're saying is actually not true. You've gone too far. And so what's the reaction of the left? Reject social science. Re because after all, it's just a white male conspiracy to seize power. Social science. You know, ignoring the fact that a lot of the best social scientists are women. And ignoring the fact that they really do have powerful evidence and they're extreme, they're very strict in their methodology. And the very fact that the academy is so dominated by the left means that they're actually very careful. They're doing really good science. I mean, they're social science. And so, or for example, history. If we study history, we find that in the 19th century and 18th century, all of the successful feminist movements were movements that combined two different wings. The left wing of the feminist movement back then was sort of like political action now, we want everything for women now, we're gonna fight for it. The conservative wing was saying that, yeah, we want, absolutely, we want equality for women, but we personally want to be at home, we want to take care of our children, but we want equality. And so is, and, and that more conservative feminist movement attracted much more support than the more radical one, much more support, public support. And it's only when the more leftist feminist movement joined, allied itself with the more conservative one, they actually started to achieve things. And so if you look at, for example, gender studies programs, getting back to gender, gender studies programs on Western universities, as, as one prominent feminist scholar put it, uh, they're, they're totally dominated by eccentric uh, fanatics. So that, for example, the latest studies in America show that 23%, that's less than a fourth, 23% of American women identify themselves as feminists and something like 16% of men. And so it's the same situation you find in previous centuries where this radical, and, and as this feminist lady put it, her name was Christina Summers, very interesting. She was a philosophy professor for 30 years and sort of man-hating sort of this sort of a man-hating radical version of it, which is really sexist because like all the evil of the world is caused by men. And, um, but because they've taken over the parkings, they have absolutely no intention of uniting with any more conservative feminists. In fact, anyone that has a more conservative view of feminism, even if the social science supports them, um, is just a, a sexist or if it's a woman, is a total traitor to the cause a woman that betrayed her gender. And so because they've taken over the, the campus gender studies programs and they're radical and very eccentric and everything, and, and so therefore they have very little public support. They have very little public support and, they have, and it's actually shrinking. And many prominent women, famous women from Hollywood and other walks, great, you know, important scholars is coming out against it and saying this is crazy. So for example, 
just to give one example in the field of, so anyway, just, just, to, just to finish off that, the simple point, the intellectual revolution right now, the, the growing revolution is taking place, not on the left, but in a, not simply, I'm not on the far right, not some, not some Christian thing, it's not Christian, it's just an academic, and, and, it's, and it's centered in, in, in the best universities, and it is a backlash, a response to the excesses and the fanaticism of the left, who have become corrupted by their power on campus. So, so, so the criticisms, number one, they're ignoring the science, and number two, it, it's become a one-party system. As one scholar put it, they live in an echo chamber. And so, and rather, rather than seeing, rather than seeing the university as a place to hear new ideas, expand your mind, listen to the other person, have debate, which enriches both sides, the university is just a staging ground for political action, and therefore anyone on campus that doesn't line up with the leftist ideology is a traitor to the cause and is actually a threat to civilization. And so therefore, you must purge the university of anyone who's not on the hard left, because even if you're a moderate leftist, you're a racist and a sexist. And so the left has now been reduced. I mean, I've tried this because I've had many debates. I've watched many debates among scholars, and the left pretty much is now reduced intellectually to name calling. It's pretty much, I, I think, it's become intellectually bankrupt in the way the right was a bit back in the 60s. And so it's shaming, name calling, if you simply deviate from dogma. And if you have all kinds, if you have massive evidence from social science, social science is just a white male conspiracy. If history shows like what I just said, that actually uh, there are many other ways to look at this, then the study of history itself is just a chauvinist sexist plot. And now what I've just heard is that certain leftist law professors are saying that the Constitution itself shouldn't be followed in the United States. Why? Because the Constitution doesn't fit their leftist dogma. So it's, it's very interesting because it's just like a fanatical Christian. Any conceivable source of evidence that disagrees with the Bible is just the devil. And, that, and, so, and so we're talking about the same psychology. Again, the content may be the opposite, but it's basically the same psychological structure. So whether it's social science, whether it's history, whether it's the, the, the U.S. Constitution, any field of study, any pillar of civilization which deviates from their dogma is to be discarded, is to, is to be destroyed. This is called totalitarianism, by the way. There's a word for it, totalitarianism. And, and this is like quintessentially the consciousness of, of the dangerous fanatic. And just, just to throw in one more point, I'm not anti-left because I actually have many liberal positions myself. I just don't want to be a dangerous fanatic. It's very interesting because if you go on, on, on a Western leftist campus, it's almost redundant there, if, if you go on a campus, and, and, and we're holding a, a Nazi flag, you probably won't be appreciated. But if you go on campus with a sickle and hammer, say I'm a Marxist, it's still kind of sexy. Despite the fact that in the 20th century, 
Marxists and communists killed at least five and up to 20 times more people than Hitler. Look it up. Chairman Mao, who was a complete monster. I mean, you know, the estimates range from, you know, 30 million, 70 million people that he directly killed or caused the death of Stalin. Stalin, Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. So there is this illusion or, or, or there's this misconception that the hard left, I don't mean anyone that wants, you know, everybody to have universal health care. I want everybody to have universal, I want everybody to have health care. I want everybody to have access to, 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 to a high quality, a quality education. I have many positions at the right of course, but um, I believe that we should not just have laissez-faire predatory capitalism, that there are boundaries beyond which wealth distribution becomes an existential threat to the moral uh, condition and, and, e and even the survival prospects of a society. So I have many positions which are, you could say, liberal in the classic sense. But, um, but if you look at the 20th century, basically, whenever the hard left took power in a country, they killed everyone that disagreed with them. And so what history shows is that this far left is in favor of free speech only when they don't have it. As it's like the classic thing where they fight to open the door and they, they walk in and close the door behind them. So it, it, it's the classic scenario where when they don't have power, they fight for free speech. As soon as they do, they destroy everyone else's free speech. It's just like if you study, it, it, it's, it's a, it's a um, sort of a, unfortunately, somewhat common human psychology. If you look at early Christian history, they, the Christians were persecuted for various reasons. They were being persecuted by Rome and they fought, you know, they were fighting to have the right to preach. And as soon as they had power under Constantine, they began to persecute everyone else. And so today's freedom fighter is tomorrow's tyrant. And, and that's a very old story. So what you say the 20th century, do we find that uh, the left really is, is supporting free speech? No, it's the opposite. They support their own speech and they very much want to suppress, if necessary, violently, the speech of others. Look at the 21st century in the universities. There has been this revolution among students where now, as all the scholars say, up to about 1994, 95, 96, if you study uh, political attitudes in American universities, for example, the, the, and if we look at the three major communities on any campus, which are the faculty, the administration, and the students, the tendency was that sometimes administration, because they just want peace, they would try to suppress certain forms of speech. Sometimes the professors would, but that the students were consistently in favor of open free speech. The students were the great defenders of free speech. Now it's the opposite. Now professors are alarmed, school administrators are alarmed, and the left, the, the leftist students who pretty much control the campuses are demanding censorship. Demanding censorship. Censorship. So it's become extremely common. 
that if a conservative speaker is invited just to speak on campus, rather than say, that's why we're here, that's what a university is for, exchange of ideas, free debate, no. Inevitably, inevitably, the leftist students will go to the administration and demand that the speaker be disinvited. And if the university does not disinvite the speaker, then it's very likely, or I can't say likely, I don't have the numbers, I wanna be uh, precise here, but it's very common that uh, those students will attempt to physically disrupt the speech. They'll try to physically prevent conservative speech on campus, either by blocking the doors or having a riot or getting to another very common technique, popular technique, is to buy up all the tickets and then not go or go there and disrupt, stand up, start chanting. In other words, you just don't let the speaker speak. They want absolute censorship of any speech which does, which does not agree with them. And there's this new idea, which is kind of loony, called safe spaces. You've heard of that? They call it safe spaces. What it is, that um, they've medicalized academic disagreement. So that if a conservative speaker is going to, is coming to campus, that actually poses a medical threat to you because you could be traumatized by hearing that someone disagrees with you or even seeing the person walk across campus. I swear to God, this is going on a lot. And at Brown University, an Ivy League school, when some conservative speaker came, was actually a scholar. We're not talking about the stupid right, even if it was, that this, they created a safe space for students who, who felt threatened and they went to a room and they had all kinds of little games for them to play with, like little children's games. And so some of the top psychologists in the country, like uh, Jonathan Haidt, who wrote a best-selling book called The Righteous Mind, saying like, why do you get this extreme left and right? What's going on neurologically? what's going on in terms of behavioral psychology in, in so many ways. And he teaches at New York University, taught for many years, University, University of Virginia, two of the best schools in the country. And um, he and other scholars are now tracing this incredible weakening, the, 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 this, 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 this complete weakening of students who always used to demand free speech who love to debate and argue and everything now, feeling seriously medically threatened by even seeing someone that disagrees with them. So these are called microaggressions. Like no one punched you in the face, no one pulled a knife on you, but it's a microaggression. This is actually a big deal in these elite schools. So, and there's a huge backlash against it now. So they're tracing it to a development, uh, they claim that in America at least, around 1995, you know, roughly around that time, there was a significant uh, shift in parenting strategies. And that before that time, um, children in America had a free unsupervised time. Children, you know, young people, young adolescents, they spent a lot of time just by themselves with their friends. I know I did. I mean, I go out with my friends to play, and I didn't have like, uh, they now call it a helicopter parent, who just like rushes in and help any time. Oh my God, what are you doing now? And, and, and so, you know, I came home from school and I just go out with my friends. 
My mother said, you know, where are you going if it wasn't my club? If I didn't say I'm going to a bar or I'm going to, you know, the wrong side of town to play with some violent gang or something, I mean, it's fine. I was going out with respectable kids or fat from good families. That was it. And I'd come back hours later. She'd hardly ask me where I was. But then it all shifted. And you have this, um, it's interesting. Because with the rise of, in, in, in a sense, leftist, you know, let's say scholarship-based ideology, the idea that our children are constantly at risk, constantly in danger, and therefore the amount of unsupervised time, and that's where you learn to be resilient. That's where you learn to deal with the real world. You know, maybe someone, I mean, I, maybe someone bullies you. I don't mean, I don't mean the kind of bullying that drives people to suicide. I'm, I'm not talking about extreme bullying here which is another issue. I'm talking about just the normal bullying. You know, if someone pushed you or someone threatened you, like, get out of here or something like that. And kids had to learn how to adapt. You had to learn how to get along in society. And they did learn. We all learned. I mean, I'm sure every one of us, at one time or another when we were kids, learned that I should not talk back to this particular person. That's the wrong person to talk back to. So, but then when you take that away, and the kids are constantly in safe spaces, don't have time alone, they become weaker. And I mean, neurologically, this is social science, they become weaker and weaker and weaker. So that college students who used to be like, bring it on, debate, you know, let's go there, let's go to the conservative program, let's ask questions, let's debate. And some students still do that. Suddenly, if someone merely disagrees with me, it's a medical threat. And because you have there these leftist professors who see any you know anything that's more conservative or moderate as the devil, therefore the students have learned that people who hold more conservative positions, first of all, they can't deal with it because they've been overprotected, and the professors have convinced them that it's actually evil. Like this is actually, you know, this is racism, this is sexism, even so that conservative speakers who actually say over and over and over again, they constantly say it, I absolutely support equal rights for women. I absolutely am against racism. I'll fight against racism. And yet, because they don't toe the line with leftist dogma, hard left dogma, they're racist and sexist. And so to give just a very short list of the people who are now speaking out against this, Barack Obama, you can find it on YouTube, but you know, speaking out against this, um, you know, the, one of the probably the most famous law professor in the United States who teaches at Harvard. Um, you know, one of the main, one of the most well-known, uh, I guess, clinical psychologists at New York University, University of Toronto, and, and and another symptom of this revolution now against this totalitarianism is that this new intellectual right is dominating YouTube. I mean, there's one professor alone, uh, Jordan Peterson, the University of Toronto, has gotten over 200 million hits. And so if you look at YouTube, you'll find that it's really the, uh, the new intellectual conservatism it is dominating social media. And so I consider as a historian, I mean, for one thing, it's very favorable to us because it, it, it's like they're fighting back. They're, fi they're, 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 they're fighting for a return to decency and for just, you know, let's, 
and, and they have social science on their side. That's the point. They're the ones that fact check. They're the ones that have social science on their side. So I'll give you some statistics. I gave an earlier talk on this, like gender issues. And then first of all, there's this overwhelming, overwhelming evidence that men and women are different, as if we needed social science to know that. Not only that, and, and they say, well, that's just cultural conditioning. No, because as Christina Summers points out, and she's a very interesting speaker, very good scholar, um, what you find is that there's a direct ratio where the more women are liberated in the sense that, let's say in, in America, compared to, let's say, third world or poor countries, what the statistics show consistently that the more women are financially free, they're not just you know working so their babies don't starve and therefore they do what they're told because your baby will starve. But women who actually are financially independent, socially and culturally independent, who are educated so they know what the options are. The more women are educated, financially independent, and socially independent, the more they tend to go to feminine career choices. And the more their career choices tend to differ from men. For example, another statistic I've heard is that perhaps the country in the world that has the most militant, radical laws against gender bias, I mean, over the top laws against gender bias is Sweden. And Sweden has the highest rate of difference between male and female career choices. And so, so what's going on here? First of all, if you, even if you believe in evolution, whether, and whether it's you know, God-guided evolution or godless evolution, women are the mothers. That's not all they are. They can you know, do a million other things, but raising the next generation of humanity that will inherit the earth is not a trivial task. Because and it's not that every woman has to be a mother. That's not at all my view. I'm simply saying that most women choose that. It doesn't mean they're better than women that don't choose it, but most women choose that. And they are themselves, they have the power to create the next world, the new world. They're recreating the earth. That's very powerful. It's extremely powerful. And uh, therefore, what all the studies show is that women are much less inclined compared to men, to risk-taking. You know, men like danger. They like, therefore, if you look at the most dangerous jobs, whether it's, you know, uh, combat soldiers working in oil rigs for one bad storm, you go into the frozen waters and never heard from again, or in other words, dangerous jobs. I mean, how, when was the last time you saw, you know, like thousands of women sign up to go up to the 50th floor and, you know, outside and clean windows? So. What, what, what you find is that um, women are not inclined, or, or let's say much less inclined than men, to take risk. Doesn't mean men are better. None of this means that men are better than women. None of this means that it's not about gender superiority, it's about gender difference. And I've seen interviews, like with some of these new intellectuals, and they're being interviewed by leftist journalists, which is kind of almost a, uh, redundancy unless you're talking about Fox News. And um, 
over and over again, they'll say, men and women are equal. I'm absolutely not saying men are better than women. I'm just saying they're, they're different. And then the interviewer will say, so you're saying that men are better than women. And, and, and so in this, in this it, it's just like, for example, if you talk to a really fanatical Christian and you say, I respect Jesus Christ. And, you know, I think he's a great teacher, but you didn't say exactly what they say. Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. You know, if, if you don't say exactly what they say, then you're going to help. It's that same psychology. So it turns out women are much less inclined than men to take risks. And thank God, imagine if the, if, if the mothers of humanity were really inclined to dangerous, dangerous occupations. Women place more value on people. Men place more value on abstract things. Things, I mean, women have always done that. So again, is it, does it mean you're a better person if you're more inclined to abstract things or just you know things rather than people? Of course it doesn't. Of course it doesn't mean that. But women are more inclined to people. When they ask women what's important to you, it's more important to women to be with family. It's more important to women to be with their friends. Men, you know, I mean, they say like, for example, more men have high positions. Maybe that's because many, many, you know, many times more men are inclined to work 60 or 70 hours a day, spend very little time with their family, and just grind, grind, grind ahead in their career, to get ahead in their career. Much fewer women think that that's a meaningful life. In fact, when they ask women, what does your ideal life look like? About 20% don't want to work. About 20% are like men, they just, you know, careers everything. And 60% say they would like maybe a part-time job, spend a lot of time with their family, their children, and, you know, maybe, you know, have some kind of job, 60%. If you look at men, so, so that means that 80% of women, given their choice, again, women who are educated, who are financially independent, who are socially independent, given their choice, 80% of women do not want to grind away full-time in a career, all day long at the job, little time with your children or family. 80% of women do not choose that. 70% of men do choose that. So if you look at the pool, if you look at the numbers of men versus women who are going for it, it's much, much greater. Also, I mean, there's all kinds of things. I've explained these things. And so, and so what does the hard, you know, the, the, what does radical feminism do with this? They reject social science. Or the only women, there's another trick, and you find this in colonial theory, you find this in gender theory, that is, in the name of liberating oppressed groups, like, you know, like women in America are very oppressed. In the name of liberating oppressed groups, you infantilize them. In other words, I was just giving a talk the other day yesterday, actually, and, and, and one student, I think maybe he's playing the devil's advocate, I hope he was, and he said that um, that the reason that India is becoming so Western is because of the pernicious colonial influence. And so what I replied is that, guess what? People in India are adults. 
So there's this theory that if you're a woman or if you're a non-white person, you have been so brutalized, so neurologically damaged that you are now incapable of thinking for yourself and incapable of making free choices. And therefore, if you choose Western culture, if you choose to stay with your family, that's not really your free choice. Unbeknownst to you, you are brain damaged by mostly by the one, the most evil group of people on earth, which is white males. And so because you've been brain damaged in this way, hard left ideologists have to speak for you. They have to tell you what you want because you can't figure it out yourself because you're brain damaged. Because otherwise, how could we say, let's say like in, in India, let's say New Delhi, just to give one example. Uh, you know, that famous example where a sweet shop that had been in New, Old Delhi actually for 200 years or more closed and the owner, I saw an interview with the owner, he said the reason is that people don't want traditional Indian sweets anymore. They want chocolate, as do we all. They want chocolate and, um, and they want pastries and they want Western sweets. So that's just, you know, colonial theory would, would just say they've been co-opted, they've been brainwashed. What if they're just adults choosing what they want, choosing for themselves? They don't need some hard left ideologist to come, treat them like a child and tell them what they want because they are brain damaged. So um, anyway, all that is going on now. And, and it's very interesting to see like more and more and more um, of the best scholars really from top universities not going to the hard right. They are feminists in their own way. They absolutely support equal opportunity for women. That's another thing you see, although they're called sexist. When back in the late 60s, it's like the big drive of the left was equal opportunity. Because if you believe that everyone's the same, again, we're not talking about better or worse, we're just talking about the same. If you believe everything, everyone is the same and you hold that as a sacred principle, it's never been proved, but you just believe it. Then it stands to reason that given equal opportunity, you get equal outcome. If you have equal opportunity and you don't get equal outcome, then retroactively and dogmatically, the only possible explanation is you didn't really have equal opportunity. And so it's very interesting, like for example, when you talk about wage disparity in the Department of Labor of the United States, which is probably the heaviest scholarly organization that, that studies labor and wages and everything. I mean, it's not just some political tacky group. It's actually the whole bunch of good scholars that study all these things. And the Department of Labor was searching for wage disparity, like what's the cause? And they, they couldn't find it. They came down to a few cents difference, which they said was within the margin of error. Because if you factor in everything else, for example, they found that people that tend to get raises are people who are aggressive, who are aggressive, who really kind of sacrifice everything else, work hard, they tend to get the races. And they found that uniformly women are much less inclined than men to be aggressive. They don't want to go out and fight with everyone. Women tend to be the peacemakers, which is obviously can be even more valuable than being a war maker. 
women tend to want peace. And which is understandable if they're neurologically wired to be mothers, then obviously you don't want your child in a dangerous situation. So they want peace. Women are not inclined. Men are, are, are actually many times more likely to say they're willing to just make any sacrifice, give up, you know, quality time with family and friends and just work, 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 work in an abstract job. Like maybe like, you know, just, and, and the growth industries are, thinking, you, know, you know, you're not going to make a lot of money if you got your degree in gender studies. If you can find a job, it's a miracle. And if you do, you're not going to make a lot of money. If you go into, say, like petroleum geology, I mean, how many I, I mean, are women beating down the doors? I want to be a petroleum geologist. I want to be a metallurgist. So, so the thing is, you have to factor in. All, and, and so because it's not like when you do a truly, say, scientific study, you, you, you can't be, you can't just, test for one factor. You've got to look at all the factors. And when you do that, and of course, social scientists have all these mathematically sophisticated ways of analyzing multiple factors. And when all the factors are put in, the wage difference tends to be trivial. So, and, and they couldn't find, I mean, because obviously in America or in England, if you actually catch someone like discriminating, really exploiting a woman because she's a woman, that's a, that's a crime. And, and they just couldn't find it. I mean, obviously some men do that, but is it a consistent uh, sort of society-wide problem? They couldn't find it. Not when you put in all the other factors. So as far as gender, I'll tell you what my position is on gender as a white male chauvinist pig. I'll tell you what, what my position is. That uh, my position, and it's always been this, actually even when I was young, I didn't even, even before I even heard of feminism. I mean, my position as a young leader in Escon to this day is give everyone, everyone, absolutely equal opportunity. Encourage everyone to follow their own inspiration, to utilize all their God-given abilities, and, and just take as much responsibility as you can to send kids on the Personally, I could not care less what kind of body you have. I really don't care. It's like, why would I wanna, why would that matter to me what kind of body you have? It's like, it's not my business. The point is, I've always been trying to get devotees to take responsibility. I've asked hundreds of women to be leaders. I've asked hundreds of men to be leaders. All I want to do is get the job done. That's really all I want, is to save this planet. And anyone, man, woman, some kind of... Anyway, I won't speculate on other possible human manifestations, but you know, anyone... Anyone that can do it, come and do it. If you're a man, if you're a woman, please, I beg you, come and do it. Take responsibility. Do whatever you can. The only limit is your ability. There's absolutely no other limit. Your ability. Whatever you can do, you have all my encouragement to do it. And if it turns out that more women like to do this, more men like, for example, one of the most intellectually demanding professions is the medical profession. 
which is more and more being dominated by women. So this has nothing to do with better or worse. The medical profession is very prestigious. It's one of the most academically, intellectually demanding professions. It's one of the most critical professions in society, and women are better at it. They just, because they just want to do that. Whether it's a nurse, and of course, among nurses, there's different levels of nursing, some very advanced. Among doctors, more women are becoming doctors. For example, in American universities, in some really good universities, the, prob the gender problem is that the men are being left behind. Because in, because in many of the best universities, many really good universities, it's now 57% women. So to say that women are coming to really become much more prominent than men in one of the most prestigious, demanding professions, which is the medical profession, that you have many good schools where women are now 57% of the student body, and say that women are just victims? Of what? So th th this cult of the victim, it's like there's this competition to see. It, it's like another thing which I find really uh, unfortunate is this hard left thing where, where I mean, there's a series of intellectual movements, all of them ultimately dangerous, which try to re reduce all social, psychological, political, and cultural analysis to a mono factor. Like, for example, in Marx, there's nothing, it's just all the economy. Or, or now it's power. There's nothing but power relationships. So men and women, for example, never ever have any kind of relationship which is not really just subjugation, domination, power relationships. Everything is power. Even to say a man and woman, they're just friends. They just like each other. And they're talking or they're just, you know, they can just... It's this incredible distortion, twisting of the reality of human relations. Yes, yeah, some people are going for power. For example, these leftist teachers. They're so much attached to power that they do everything possible to drive out of the university people that disagree with them. And you know, it's interesting, and students now also want to drive away, you know, violently if necessary, anyone that disagrees with them. Is that power or what? So all these things are going on, and uh, find it interesting because there's all kinds of wonderful intellectual opportunities for us now. Not to, to bash the left, not just to jump on the right, but just to bring to bear a growing, massive body of social science and historical analysis and just really good scholarship which is confirming that certain moral principles or ideas that took literally thousands of years to develop in human society can't just be thrown away. It's just like, you know, like maybe 100 years ago or 50, 60 years ago when doctors became so proud or scientists so proud, like, no, you don't need your appendix. No, you don't need your tonsils. You know, you don't need this. It's like just throwing stuff out. And so one of the things that some of these scholars are saying is we need to look at 
certain ways in which society developed over thousands of years, certain types of relationships, certain types of values, and not just be so arrogant, so much hubris, they just trash it without even really understanding what's going on. That is not, by the way, a plea for racism or sexism or anything like that. It's just a plea for sanity. Ultimately, what, what's Krishna's position on gender ultimately? The good Lord told me. Um, Krishna says it all over the Gita. He says, for example, Pandita Samadarshana, a wise person sees everyone equally. One achieves the highest devotion when you see everyone equally. Krishna says, I reciprocate with everyone. So for following God, we reciprocate. If someone is advanced in Krishna consciousness, man or woman, you have to respect that person. If a woman is capable of doing some kind of service, whatever it is, then that means she has God-given abilities to do it. If a woman actually has the ability to do a particular type of service, whether it's being a guru or any kind of leader or bottle washer, you know, whatever it may be, those are God-given abilities. And so if you don't allow a woman to work the full extent of her ability, you are actually going against God because he gave her those abilities and Krishna himself says that you must follow your nature. You must follow your real nature. Now, the modern society has all kinds of freedoms and is also very degraded. So the real historical question here is, how do we construct a society which gives a very generous, full amount of freedom to everyone and yet is not degraded? We see older societies that were more conservative, that restricted women to certain roles, and you could say they were quote-unquote moral in some ways. And then you can find societies that give a lot more freedom and in certain moral ways are extremely degraded. And I think, and I don't mean in a religious sense, I mean it in a socio-psychological, philosophical sense. That obviously, the, you know, if you give power to the people, as in democracy, obviously the quality of that democracy your only hope is that you have a significant number of, of voters who are not just stupidly selfish who are not ignorant who actually take the time to educate themselves and make unselfish decisions based on what is best for the society if you don't have that you're in very serious trouble which is why by the way the new generations are losing faith in democracy which was inconceivable before so, and yet a society which is just obsessed with sex, I mean, really in a sick way, obsessed with it. And, and, and if you just suggest that maybe, let's say like a woman shouldn't go out on the street half naked or more, you're body shaming her. You're body shaming her. So, but in a society in which everyone is like, like obsessed with sex and pornography is the, you know, the big thing on the internet, how do you expect people who are filled with selfish desire because lust is a selfish desire, greed is a selfish desire, narcissism, there's like the, the cult of narcissism in our society. You see that university campuses where like 
you're the greatest, you know, you're unique, you are the best. Never let anyone tell you you're not perfect the way you are. It's, uh, you know, the call, if, if I'm a music teacher, and let's say you're beginning your music lessons, I'm not gonna say you're perfect the way you are, because if you think that, you'll always be an extremely poor musician. I'm going to say to you that, yeah, you can be a great musician, but you better put the pedal to the metal. You can be a great musician. You're gonna to have to work very hard at it. So to tell people that the way you are now, you know, and for many people that means quite ignorant and, you know, can't quite control themselves and they, you know, they indulge in all kinds of selfishness. You're perfect the way you are. You don't need to actually know what the issues are. You don't need to be educated. You don't know, need to cultivate virtue where you just want to do what's best for the most people. You don't need any of that. You're just perfect. And so when this modern society, it's very interesting because the hard left are the ones that are really pushing like, you know, everyone's equal. And yet they're strongly encouraging everyone. You know, they strongly defend all kinds of vulgarity, all kinds of sense gratification. which makes people more and more selfish and less and less likely to really do what's best for everyone. To make personal sacrifices for the common good, less and less inclined. So this vulgarizing of the electorate, it's like Hollywood. You know, they tend to be hard left, but then again, they're the ones who have normalized vulgarity, narcissism. They've, they've normalized it. They've actually glamorized it. And so all these people that watch all these movies and decide that vulgarity is actually cool, so why not vote for Trump? So there's all kinds of dynamic factors working in society. And anyway, I think I'll stop now because I have to do other things. Uh, but um, anyway, those are some thoughts that I have. At my age, I remain intellectually engaged. So any questions on these points? I'm not against the left. I just, uh, even The Economist, which is a leftist publication in England, did this little video. The silly part of the video, it was on the history of liberalism. The silly part was that they attributed virtually all the cultural, political, and social advancements uh, in the last 300 years to the left. And apart from that, they said the left has to up its game because people are sick of this political correctness. They didn't use the word um, tyranny, but that's the word. Even the, the economists, which attributes all good things in the last 300 years to the left, which is historically absurd. Um, even they say they have to up their game. So what I would like to see is a revitalized left, which actually um, listens to other opinions and doesn't try to censor all kinds of opposing speech and doesn't engage in silly, frivolous name-calling with anyone that doesn't precisely agree with them. That would be nice, because we need a strong left, not the silliness we're getting out, uh, especially on college campuses, and on some campuses. So, yes.
Good old Petra. Oh, okay, I can't hear you. Oh, go ahead. Speak loudly. No, please come closer. Yeah, because it's the yeah, in order for me to hear. Um, do you hear me now? Yeah. Um, so I was just talking about um, all these professors from the university. And um, you mentioned Jordan Peterson, um, who is very popular, like you said, and then this is some of his lectures. Um, but what, what do you think makes him so popular? Like, why he's got such a sport all over, from all over the world, and actually he said, yes, you know, a lot of those do make sense. And um, I would say, too, do, do you yeah. think, hmm? Go ahead. Yeah. Do you think you could do something the same, like um, something similar, or? Well, I'd have to let my hair grow to be like him. But... <laughs> That'd probably be the main challenge. No, as far as Jordan Peterson, I mean, obviously, I don't agree with everything he says. I, I would say yes, but he has two things really in his favor. Number one, he's very courageous. And number two, he's very learned. He's very learned, and he's actually fair-minded. So he's, you know, he's a very learned person. He knows his profession. He knows philosophy, and he just tells the truth. Because for so long, it's like, you know, all the shaming and name-calling and intimidation has, you know, because most people, they don't want to be publicly shamed and intimidated and harassed, so why bother saying it? I'll just leave my life. And so he's saying it. So obviously, they're growing huge and growing numbers of people that understand that finally someone said, the emperor has no clothes. I think that's it. It's interesting because on the right, we have the famous science deniers, like the, the right-wing people against that say there's no climate change or it's not caused by human beings, which is, of course, absurd. But what we have to see is on the, on the hard left. By the way, in the media, they constantly use the term far right, which means in, in, in most of the mainstream media to the far right of the person writing the story. And what's interesting is that the, the media, which is overwhelmingly left, there's a few exceptions, but mostly left, they simply do not use the term far left. I mean, they say far right, they, they use the term far right, they don't use the term far left. They just don't use it. Or for example, if you follow the European media, what you find is that in this like, you know, huge immigration debate going on in Europe, I mean, you know, it's probably, it's probably the biggest issue now in Europe. And um, what's interesting is there are arguments on both sides. You know, there, there are, people, learned people, I'm not saying I agree with them, but there are learned people that make arguments in favor of white immigration, taking in refugees, and there are equally learned people, equally learned people who make cogent arguments, whether you agree or not, in favor of reduced immigration. What's interesting is, to give you an example, France Van Capture, France 24 is one of the main channels in, in, in France, and they have news. I mean, it's it's they have news in French, English, Arabic, and Spanish every day. I mean, you know, 
it's a, it's a major news outlet. And whenever this immigration thing, I've never, I've seen them constantly interview people when there's some issue, like there's a new boat coming up, you know, from North Africa and no, and no European country wants to let it dock. And so typically they'll always interview an advocate of immigration and they'll never interview a person against immigration. And they will always, anyone who has a conservative view of immigration will always be referred to uh, by that media as a xenophobe. Someone who has an irrational fear of strangers or foreigners, a xenophobe. They won't say it's a conservative thinker that's making historical, sociological, cultural arguments why there are only certain rates in which a society can assimilate another culture, that many of the people coming, for example, actually don't believe in some of the core values of the West, such as, you know, religious freedom. They tolerate it because, you know, they have no power, but they, uh, it, it, they come from countries where an overwhelming majority of people believe that you, should, you know you should kill people that lead your religion just because they want to become a Hare Krishna or a Christian or a Buddhist, whatever. They should be killed. That women who commit adultery should be killed, and they come from cultures where there's no religious freedom. And so, and so, having a large influx of people with these kinds of attitudes, I think at the very least you could say is something you got to think about. At least you could say, you have to think about it. It requires some study, it requires some thought. And not to speak of the economic ramifications, not to speak, anyway, whatever. Not to speak of the fact that certain communities tend to be less educated, and as every political scientist who favored democracy when it was first becoming established, understood that democracy will very quickly become corrupt and dangerous, if the electorate is not educated, and that's what we're finding out. So there are issues. There are actually historical political science issues. At least it needs a good discussion. You never see that on the mainstream media. It's simply that anyone that disagrees with the leftist media's opinion that just open the gates, anyone that disagrees with that for any reason is simply a xenophobe. They have xenophobia, they have an irrational fear an irrational, uh, unethical fear of people who are different than them. And they're very likely racist. So um, what's happening is, as there's a scholar, what's his name? Um, Stephen Pinker, another one. He is a very prominent scholar at Harvard. And he's also exposing himself to all kinds of abuse and offenses because he's just saying, well, I think I'm going to go with the science here. I'm not going to just jump on the political correctness bandwagon. I want to look at the science. And so, for example, he, he pointed out that one of the reasons, and actually he pointed this out, his, his purpose was to try to stop the stupid far right from growing. His purpose was actually to advise people on the left what you really need to do to counteract a rise of dangerous uh, extremism on the right. That was his purpose. And he said one of the problems is, one of the problems is 
that the hard, the far left, a term not used in mainstream media, that the far left um, censors facts, like real facts, because they think that those facts may lead people to take non-liberal views. And so rather than risk that, it's better to censor the information. For example, the fact that many times more blacks kill white in the United States than whites kill black. Blacks. Or the fact that a white police officer, percentage-wise, not absolute numbers, but, but per capita, a white police officer is more likely to kill a white man than a black man. And, 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 and these are numbers you will absolutely never hear on the mainstream media. They just will never talk about it. But what's happening now with this YouTube explosion and other social media, I don't know the names of all this stuff because I never use it, but what's happening is that millions and millions and millions of people are starting to discover these facts and they're feeling cheated. Like, why didn't our professors tell us this? Why isn't the left telling? Why are they hiding and censoring? Because we're not children. Why are you censoring our lives? And there's anger. There's anger. And, 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 and to be, I'm just telling you what's going on. I'm, I'm not jumping on the bandwagon, but the, and one, one of the main reasons Trump won the election, again, this is not my opinion, just talking about historical facts, is that actually there's a huge number of people now in the United States that feel that the main racism now is white bashing. Like for example, Stanford University, you know, Stanford. Uh, I remember, I, I read the press release. They were so happy. They were like beside themselves with joy because they finally achieved a goal of making sure that white students were not a majority of the student body in an incoming freshman class. So it's not that they just wanted equity or this, let's just take the best students. It was like a tremendous historical victory to get rid of white students. And what's interesting, and, 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 what, and if there's ever, in other words, like racism on the other side, if, if there's a situation, for example, let's say where a, a white policeman kills a black youth, for example, which is typical, it may be that the white policeman acted criminally and, and, you know, and murdered an innocent person. And that happens. And when it does happen, it has to be severely, absolutely punished and prevented. And there are other times when no, it's justified. But as soon as you hear a, black, a white policeman killed a black youth, you know, you don't need to wait for an investigation. You already know what it is. It's racism. It's an execution style slaying in which a, a, a white racist killed an innocent, oppressed black youth, even if the facts are completely opposite. Like in the case, famous case, where a, a, a huge 6'5", 300-pound, drug-crazed young black person punched a white policeman in the face and then was reaching for his gun to kill him, the white policeman did exactly what you're supposed to do according to all the race-sensitive protocols and killed the guy. And then of course that was a horrible case of racism that provoked nationwide demonstrations because that's called prejudice. The word prejudice literally means prejudging. So you don't need to wait 
for all the facts. And an investigation of this case was conducted by the Attorney General of the United States. It was such a hot issue. The Attorney General, the highest you know, law enforcement official in the United States government, uh, personally took the case away from the city and away from the state, personally investigated and decided that the, the policeman didn't do anything wrong. Now, the interesting point here is the Attorney General was an African-American, Eric Holder. And he was put on the case by an African-American president, Barack Obama. So when an African-American president assigned an African-American attorney general to investigate and found that there had been thousands of nationwide demonstrations which were actually racist and prejudiced, because everyone, because the people holding the demonstrations had absolutely no interest in waiting for the investigation to be concluded to find out what actually happened. They had zero interest in the facts. They had already made their judgment. There is a technical word for that in English. It is prejudice, prejudice, prejudice. That's what the word means. And so is there white racism? Of course. Is there the opposite, it, does a hard left tend to be racist and sexist against certain groups? Absolutely. And so people are just figuring this stuff out. It's just like, for example, every tyrant, every dictator tries to control information. You know, when, when there's a revolution, the first thing you do is seize the television stations, seize the newspapers, seize all the channels of communication. So you control information, it's the first thing you do. And so, but eventually, because there are so many revolutions, you know, today's freedom fighter is tomorrow's tyrant. That's exactly the story of the left. Today's freedom fighter is tomorrow's tyrant, today's tyrant. And so more and more people, you know, it's very interesting. The reason some dictatorships are falling is with, because of the democratization of information. Because of the internet now, you can no longer control information. So let's say, for example, back in the 60s, let's say I went to Berkeley, or whatever school I went to, and so all I knew was what my teachers told me. There may be a professor in Indiana, or, in, you know, or at Harvard, or, or New Mexico, anywhere. That's a whole different take, that has other information. I'll never know that, because I have no access to any of that information. But now, everybody can sit at home, and find out everything. You have access to everything. And so information pulls down tyrants in many cases. And that's what's happening. The leftist tyranny on campus. And again, my ultimate goal is to, I would like to see a strong left because they've also defended us. I'm not against them. I don't want to destroy them, but they definitely, even leftist media like The Economist says, they really need to up their game. So what's happening with this democratization of information where everyone has access to all information, more and more and more people by the millions are saying we've been cheated. We were not told about this social science. We were not told about this history. And so there's this growing revolution against uh, this intellectual tyranny. That's actually what's happening right now. And as a historian and as a bona fide Islam guru, I am, um, if you want to 
my digital card. Just let me know and I'll send you. <laughs> Things very interesting because it's a pendulum effect. It's a mirror reflection of what happened in the 60s. It's a mirror reflection. The left demanding censorship, the right fighting for free speech on campus. Very interesting. And of course, ultimately, we just want to, and so, you know, we need political balance. We need intellectual balance. We need people to talk to each other. And so I'm happy not because now we'll get a rightist regime and, you know, destroy the left. That's not the point at all. The point is we need balance. And in a balanced, free intellectual environment, we will do wonderfully well. That is the environment we need in order to spread Krishna consciousness. So that's ultimately why I think these are positive developments. Let's speak of Charyathustra. Anyway, that's a joke. So any other questions? If not, I'll, I'll let you go. And um, well, I feel like I feel all the excitement of an old leader of the Soviet Union used to give like five hour speeches at the Apollo Bureau. <laughs> yes, saving Prabhu Ramananda. Reshma? I mean, you can, you can, you can double dip, Petra. If you want to ask another question. Yes. You have to come closer. It's better to see you, my dear. You know, like, uh, <laughs> where's Petra? Uh, where's, I mean, um, Pradyuna? Oh, there you are. Vanished. Okay. Go ahead. I've been to a few um, temples recently on men and women relationships in, in ISKCON. And it seems to be suggested in in one of them, at least, that we really need to understand how to approach one another um, generally and in kind of intimate relationships in marriage as well. Um, and so it does sound like there is a. I'm just wondering, do, do we, this gone particularly, do we need to think about roles and training yeah. Yeah. one another, or is it very natural? Or, or, or no, no. Yeah. I mean, I mean what is the normal way that a healthy child grows up? A healthy child grows up being trained by good parents. You don't just, you know, send your, you say, tell your kids, I have nothing to tell you, just go out in the world, you'll figure it out, I trust you. But I'm only five years old, that's okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> the point here is that when you become a devotee, it's a second birth. You know, whether you're officially a Brahmin or not, it's a second birth. And we have to be trained. There's been some mistraining in the past. So, what's that? Go ahead. No, please. Uh, yeah, I was just wondering how would you train so many opinions and, um, you know, some of those are very I think it's very simple. It's very simple. It's very, very simple. Whatever anyone may say. That um, 
every living being has a God-given, a Krishna-given right to serve Krishna according to their own nature and their own inspiration. Now, they also have to do that in a way that's not degrading to them. So if one says, I'm following my inspiration, but one becomes degraded, you better come back home and you know rethink. In other words, to serve Krishna according to an inspiration, which they can pursue without losing their Krishna consciousness. Because when we pursue the service of our choice, um, we have to do so in a way that we don't lose our soul in the name of serving God. So whatever service inspires you, whatever your abilities allow you to do, and if you can do that and keep your spiritual life going, then you have a God-given right to do it. And what we should not do is politicize devotional service. There's two ways to politicize it. One way is sort of this affirmative action, you know, women, you know, the men have messed up the temples, let the women take over the temples, like kind of like pushing women, intimidating, like making women feel that they're somehow not doing the right thing if they actually follow their own inspiration. Because again, that's the statistic that the more liberated women are in the real sense, in the important ways, financially independent and socially independent. You know, no one's going to come and rape and kill you because you put, you know, you wanted a certain profession, like in certain countries. You're actually socially free to do what you want and you're financially independent and you're educated. So you, so you know what the choices are because you're educated. And the more women have those conditions, the more their choices tend to be different than the choices men make. Because women, when they're actually free, choose what they really want to do. And whatever that looks like, whatever that looks like, if it means they want to have children and family, if it means they want to uh, be scholars, if they want to be, I mean, just, you know, that's their choice. They have to follow their own nature, but they have to do so in a way. I would say that they should, that all of us, it doesn't matter, man or woman, we should choose our career in a way which satisfies two criteria. One is that we do not degrade ourselves spiritually. And number two, that we cooperate with other devotees. Which doesn't mean you have to cooperate with people who are trying to put you down. I don't mean that. I mean cooperate with people who respect you and 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 respect your choices but work you know cooperatively have good association protect your spiritual life and then just do what you were born to do so i mean what else are we supposed to do i can't imagine what else we would do what's that gender training Oh, gender training. Yeah, like women should be, you know, you'll be happiest if you serve the husband, and the husband will be happy because he feels like the hero, and then, then everyone's happy. That's the kind of thing I've heard. Uh, that may be true with sutras. Okay. I don't know. I mean, personally, I don't know. It's like it seems to me, I mean, there are men like that, but... It seems to me a man who's more who's more spiritual. 
Like, for example, Krishna's own dear friend, Sudama Brahmana. He was living so austerely because he kind of, you know, Krishna says in the Gita, be satisfied with gain which comes of its own accord. He was, and basically no gain came. And so, you know, his ribs were sticking out. And his wife said, look, your dear school friend, you know, when you, when you were a kid, your school friend was Krishna, who's now, the, you know, the great prince of Dwarka. Just go ask him. He, you know, he loves the Brahmins. He'll help us. And Susudama said, no, I don't want to do it. So what happened? He went. Because his wife said, you got to go. So this fairy tale where in Vedic culture, men just boss women around and they just, you know, you know, optionally like, tie their little feet together like, you know, they used to do in Japan. And, you know, the man always dictates everything and the woman just humbly, you know, no, that's not the real world. For example, in the case of Sudama Brahma, when uh, Pandu was urging Kunti to call more demigods, and she said, no, it's too greedy. You know, I, I've already called three. And he said, please do. And then he says, whether a man is right or wrong, the wife has to follow him. But th literally three minutes later, he followed her. So what you actually find, what you actually find in, in Vedic literature is that these are real people. And anyone that has a successful marriage knows, with a rational wife, you know, a wife that's not just, anyone that has a marriage with a, with a woman has any character at all, any intelligence at all, knows that marriage is give and take. Marriage is give and take. It, it's a partnership, and there has to be give and take. And, and a man has his domain, a woman has her domain. And in a real marriage, in a good marriage, the man is the biggest fan of the wife and the wife is the biggest fan of the husband and nothing makes either happier than to see the other succeeding and the husband is cheering on the wife and the wife is cheering on the husband and so the kind of sort of sick man that feels threatened and discouraged because his wife is doing really nice service for krishna i mean is that the kind of movement we want with sick men who become discouraged to see their wife is having a great life that makes me unhappy I feel threatened because I want you to be mediocre so, so you can sort of indulge my narcissism. And of course, in, in reciprocation, the woman is really is devoted to the husband. They're devoted to each other. They both want to see the other succeed. They both want to see the other happy. It's a partnership. And so I think the training has to be to um, see your spouse with respect, with intelligence, and just try to see what's, what's the best way you can help that person. What's the best way you can serve that person so that person has a great life. And women are different. Some women are powerful intellectuals. Some women just want to do very simple chores. Some men are simple. So, so it's, it's like this one size fits all is ridiculous. There's all these variables. What's the varna of the woman? What's the varna of the man? If your wife is a brahmani who's very intelligent, you want to treat her like a shudra? What's the varna of the man and woman? What's the, and what's their, what are their abilities? What are their fears? Every man and woman has their own psychological background. They can do certain things. They can't do other things. So I think it's a question of really getting to know the other person and respecting the other person and 
my experience has been consistently, and I'm not making this up because I'm a male chauvinist pig, but my experience has been that um, almost every woman I've ever met, not maybe every last one, but almost every woman I've met, if a man is respectful and respectful to the woman and sincere, that she's happy to get some help. I've met very few women that will not accept help from, and by respectful I mean, they actually listen to the woman to find out what she actually needs. And so a respectful, affectionate relationship between two people who are not exploiting the other for their own vanity, but just want to help each other. That's marriage, my understanding. If you think I'm wrong, don't say it. <laughs> I don't know, some men want a little stupid doll or something, but you know, a little Barbie doll or something, but I think any man that's worth having, any man that's just is, um, first of all, he's in, in Krishna consciousness, you see his wife as a spiritual soul. It's like if your wife, let's say, needs water, you provide water, you don't bash. I mean, just just a question of respecting other people. Just a question of respecting other people, being a nice person. And not spending, you know, most of your life trying to feed your own vanity or your own false ego. And both people, but both, and then we both have to do that. So, did I get the right answer? Do I get a prize? Uh-uh. Any other question? Sankarsana does. This one, I'm just curious if anyone is, oh, can I ask one question here from Paramstreya? Because I said I was gonna start looking at the questions on, on, on. Facebook. Parang Shreya from Germany said, why are young students nowadays so fanatical? After all, young people usually are a bit open and thoughtful for other opinions. It's generally more the older people who are stuck in certain viewpoints. Yes, and that is precisely that which is startling scholars. Like, how could this be happening? And the two main reasons, apparently, at least the ones I've heard are, number one, there's been an unfortunate shift in um, parenting strategy where the children are weakened they're weakened by over parenting not being allowed time just to interact with other kids and therefore they feel threatened by anything which is not what they want and the second reason is i think they have been subjected to fanatical fanatical irrational science denying faculty They've been, they've been given dogma instead of science. And there's something very pleasing to young people about being self-righteous and being able to think you're better than all the adults. You know, there's something kind of gratifying about that. And it's become like mob psychology. You know, it, 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 you get this, for example, 
Um, there's this thing now, believe the victims. You've heard that one? Believe the victims, like in sex abuse or sexual harassment. There's, of course, there's only one problem. In order to become convinced that someone's a victim, I have to see evidence. In other words, I'm not going to believe anyone, man or, for example, a woman. A senior lady in this con was accused of different things, and it came out that there was a trial or investigation that was highly irregular. They didn't follow the proper principles of jurisprudence, and therefore I defended the woman in his con even when I was slandered for it. I was, I was accused of all kinds of horrible things, but all I said was, she deserves a fair trial. And there's a backlash. I, I mean, there's actually a growing backlash against the fact that any woman can destroy the life of any man without a trial, without evidence, without anything. She can just destroy his life. Any woman can destroy a man's life without evidence. So you know, that's like mob rule. It's like vigilantism. I say if a woman, let's say, accuses a man of sexual harassment, my response is we should take the accusation very seriously. So I take the woman seriously. I will insist on a, a serious, fair investigation. One extreme is uh, the woman's complaining, oh, you're lying, or you enjoyed it, or you know, you know all this garbage. So that's one extreme. Another extreme is if a woman says it, it's true. We don't need a trial. You know, it's, it's vigilantism. String them up from the highest tree. We don't need a trial. We don't need evidence. Let's suspend all the rules of civilization. Let's suspend all the rules of civilized societies and just destroy someone because someone else said something. So I vote for civilization. I vote for justice. And if someone accuses another person of sexually harassing them, I say you must take the accusation seriously and respond with a fair and thorough investigation. And if, if there's evidence that there was indeed abuse or harassment, then there should be serious consequences. That's my position. Do I believe that people's lives should be destroyed when they have no right to defend themselves, with no evidence is required, any any person could destroy someone else's life without fair process. It was very interesting because it used to be a time that the left fought against these things. For example, that's what whites did with blacks in the South. They didn't need evidence. If 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 a white woman said that a black man harassed her, harassed her, that black man that black man was history. He was gone. Trial, don't need a trial. And that's precisely what the left fought against, vigilantism, mob rule. Now they're demanding it. They're demanding censorship. They're demanding vigilantism. It's wonderful.
anyway, I don't want to talk about politics, but I, I do think this is an important historical development, and I think ultimately it's favorable for us. Because the new intellectual right, which is growing very quickly, is not Christian. I mean, many of them are Christian, but it's not Christian. It's just scholars, some of whom are actually agnostic or atheists. So it's, so it's, it's not just a you know, fanatical Christian program. And it's, uh, we have total opportunity to bring Krishna consciousness to the discussion. And so the opening up of Western universities to truly fair and balanced discussion is a huge benefit for us. So we don't have to hide some of our conservative moral positions, lest we be, you know, practically burned at the stake on these leftist campuses. Because now social science is actually vindicating us. Did I answer your question about my views on gender? I think I did. Sometimes I'll talk for like 20 minutes and someone will say, that's not what I asked. So, let me just see real quickly if anyone else. Anyway, I hope Parantreas is satisfied. Oh, he said, is it the result of year-long? Yeah, I actually answered that, Parantreas. It is. There, there is indoctrination. That, that definitely is part of it. Uh, let's see. Oh, thank you. Getting some nice comments. Uh, let's see. Anyone else ask anything? Citizens mentioned Vedas. The Vedas mentioned Mark. Your citizens mentioned how they, citizens can criticize the government. Yes. Okay. So thank you all very very much. Thank all those who are on Facebook. Thank you for watching. Keep those large and practical donations coming in. Just, just kidding. And all, all glories to Krishna West London, I hope. I mean, I would be so happy to again take those walks with all of you. So. Thank you so much for spending all this time with us. Yeah, I'm just trying to kind of share, because I personally am sort of engaged studying these things, because I really want to know what's going on in the world, what's our role in it, how does this favor us, what are the new opportunities? and so on. Okay, thank you all very much. Hare Krishna. And uh, thank you all very much on Facebook.